ones that recognises your face. Mm. So yeah, too bad if you're overhung or <laughs> can't connect the computer. Anyway, um, thanks for your testimony, Gerald. We've been keeping, um, we've been praying for you. You know, as, um, as you've gone through this journey. Reminds me of the time Erica took me to the doctor and the, the doctor pulled her aside and she said, I don't like the look of him. And she says, I don't either, but he's been good to the children. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, um, we had a full house at Easter, lots of grandchildren around. We had six adults and five children in the house. Might have felt crowded here at Easter, but in a small house like ours, um, it felt especially um, crowded. We had a wonderful time, though, Lots of laughing and kids, our children get on with each other and the in-laws get on with each other and the kids enjoyed each other's company. They did some crazy things to get us laughing. So one of the things, they, and you could try this with the young people, but you've got to have a broomstick in between your elbows and you're held back like this. And you've got to get down on the floor, right down onto your stomach with the broomstick behind your elbows. Can you imagine what that's like for a 62-year-old? Here I'm, here I'm and then up again. Yeah, so... It, so I ended up on the floor, you know, on my knees and my head, my forehead, couldn't move. So the, so the room is in fits of laughter watching me, except for maybe the three-year-old. She was just puzzled. Just <laughs> yeah, and then you've got to try and get up again. So anyway, the younger people could do it, but it certainly illustrated to me that I do not have the agility that I used to have and um, getting old. So today... It's nothing to do with physical agility, but you will need some mental agility because I want to go through a passage of scripture that sometimes we um, overlook. It's a bit like Steph was saying about routine. We read it and we think, oh yeah, that's a nice story, without understanding um, what John was trying to get from it. So we're talking about through John 4, the, the story of the, the woman of Samaria. If you remember from um, my two previous sermons... We talked about John 20, 31, in which John says, everything in, in this book is written down so that you might believe and keep on believing that Jesus is uh, the Christ, the Son of God, right? So we can't take anything for granted that's in the book of John. Every word is, has a meaning. There's no word wasted in the book of John. So remember the last time I preached, we talked about why... John recorded faithfully that there was 153 fish caught in the net. This is after Jesus' resurrection. And we learnt that it was a pointer to Jesus as the Son of God. Um, the first time I, I preached on John, we talked about the names of God and the unmentionable name of God, Yahweh, which we pronounce with vowels, but actually the, the Jews don't. They can only pronounce it by breathing it. So we breathe the name of God when we are born and we breathe the name of God when we die. And every time in between. And it's a real message about the accessibility of God, right? Um, so as a bit of background to John 4, um, the Samaritans were a half-breed. So they, they, they intermarried with Assyrians and they became half-Jewish and half-Gentile. So they had their own copy of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and they practiced a religion similar to the Jews, except that they believed that they needed to worship at Mount Gerizim, a holy place, and the Jews were meant to, to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Um, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get on. They avoided each other wherever possible, and, and they despised each other. 
Um, and so <clears throat> when... Uh, oh, yeah, in Luke, in Luke 9, we read that Jesus wasn't welcomed in Samaria. In Samaria. So most Jews would not travel through Samaria, and they went the longer route. So you'll see on your newsletter... I've got one here. So Jesus had to go from Jerusalem to Nazareth or to, to Galilee. And they would usually take that, that curved circle. They'd, they'd cross the Jordan and they'd go through an area called Perea to go up to Nazareth. It was quite a lot longer journey, about the length of a marathon, apparently. Um, so Jesus instead took his disciples up through Samaria. And John, in verse 4, it says that he had to go that way. He had to go to Samaria. Why? Why, when the Jews, any self-respecting Jew, would avoid Samaria like the plague? Because they didn't get on. So we're going to learn why Jesus went to Samaria. And it might be, you know, we could think about a divine appointment with the woman of Samaria, but it was actually a little bit deeper than that, even. So let's go through this. Um, we can, if you've got your Bibles, we can start reading from verse 3. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, also near Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped. That's not in the Bible, I'm just, that's a footnote. All right. So Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat by the well. It was about noon. So the Bible says the sixth hour, that means six hours after sunrise. So it's about noon in the heat of the day. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Um, I just want to speak for a minute about the significance of her coming in the heat of the day alone. Because usually the woman would come early in the morning of the cool of the day and they'd have a gossip and they'd have a friendly time and they'd go home with their water. She was an outcast. She was despised by the woman in the village. And we'll learn why a little bit later on. So she came all by herself in the heat of the day just when Jesus happened to be there. So um, let's just, I'll just summarise uh, verses up to, up to 24. I won't read the whole thing. So um, during the course of the conversation with this woman, she comes to believe in Christ as the Messiah. First of all, they start by talking about, uh, you know, she asks, first of all, why is he talking to a, a woman, a Samaritan? And he kind of ignores the question. He says, you know, if you were to, if, uh, if you knew that I could give you living water, you wouldn't have to draw from this water in the well altogether. Um, wouldn't you be interested in that? She says, yes, please give me this living water so I don't have to come up here every day and draw water from the well. Um, he talked to her about the difference between having to worship at a specific place, Mount Gerizim, or a temple, and actually worshipping in spirit and in truth, an attitude of worship rather than a place of worship. Um, and then he had a word of knowledge for her, which really cemented it for her. He said, go get your husband. And she said, well, I haven't got a husband. And he says, that's true, you've had five, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And she says, um, she says I perceive that you're a prophet. Verse 25 says, uh, the woman said, uh, let me just get back a wee bit. Yeah. The woman said, in verse 25, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now this is the first recorded instance of Jesus declaring himself as the Messiah. 
This is hugely significant because he's declaring it to a sinner, a woman, a Samaritan, in a, in a land that he is a stranger to, that he's not welcome in. Isn't this amazing? Now, I just um, it, throughout this, you'll see a theme of spiritual versus natural. And Jesus is trying to take us from the natural to the spiritual. And it seems that at times, during the, the course of this chapter, that people are on a different plane. He's talking to his disciples about one thing, uh, and they are understanding another, or they're thinking about another thing. And the same with the woman. She's talking about thinking about natural water. He's talking about spiritual water, living water. She's talking about worshiping in a place. He's talking about um, worshiping in spirit and truth. It reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon I came across some time ago. Uh, did you remember Peanuts? Charlie Brown and Linus and so on. So, so Lucy, Linus and Charlie Brown are looking up at the sky and Lucy says, you can see lots of things in the clouds. And then turning to the other, she says, what do, what do you see, Linus? And he says, well, those clouds up there look to me like the map of Belize at the little nation in the Caribbean. And glancing in a different direction, he says, that cloud looks like the profile of Thomas Eakins, a famous painter and sculptor. And that cloud formation over there gives the impression of the stoning of Stephen. I can even see Saul of Tarsus standing on one side. Uh-huh, gasped gasp, Lucy, that's great. Now, what do you see, Charlie Brown? Clearing his throat. Um, I was going to see, I saw a ducky and a horsey, but I've changed my mind. <laughs> thinking on two different levels, right? And we had a we had a real life example of that, and some of you will have heard the story. But Erica came across um, somebody who had painted our house in Auckland. He was a he was a painter back then, now living in Tauranga. And she says, "What are you doing now?" And he said, uh, "I'm a pastor." But what she heard was, "I'm a plasterer." <laughs> or he said, "I'm pastoring," and she heard, "I'm plastering." So this this led to a bit of a confused conversation. So she says, um, "Oh." That's a really hard job when we do it and you turn the light on, you can see all the imperfections. <laughs> you know. So you can imagine what he was thinking. So they had a bit of they had a bit of a laugh after it. I'm sure there's a sermon in there somewhere. But uh, anyway, speaking at two different levels, and you must have had a conversation where you've misheard something and said something totally unexpected to the to the other person. I'm sure you've got some funny instances of it. But here we have this here where Jesus um, is talking about the spiritual, thinking of, talking about eternal things, and the, the, the disciples are talking about natural things. So we're going to get to the crux of this question, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Um, and I have to warn you in advance, he actually rebukes his disciples in the next passage. Not many people realise it, but he's rebuking his disciples, a mild rebuke. Um, and John was one of the disciples that was there, and to his credit, he faithfully records every word because there's a lesson in it for us. So let's read from verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, this is important because the woman was so excited about finding the Messiah, she just left her buckets and ran down to the city. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way towards Jesus. Now the verbs in verse 30 are both present tense, so that's suggesting that it's a continuing action. So while Jesus is talking with his disciples and talking about the food and the harvest, there's a steady stream of people coming up the hill to approach Jesus. 
And meanwhile, his disciples, back to earth again, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months to harvest? So this is a typical time between sowing seeds and harvesting, the growth, right, four months. Um, I think Galilee even has a meaning involving harvest uh, from memory. But anyway, they're going to Galilee, the, the, the disciples are thinking about food again, the, the natural harvests, sowing and, and reaping. But he says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. What's he telling them to, to look at? All these people coming up the hill, right, from Sychar. Even now, in verse 36, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may be glad together. And thus the one, the saying one sows and another reaps is true. Now here's his rebuke. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you've reaped the benefits of the labour. Who did the hard work in this instance? Woman of Samaria. Because it says later in, uh, in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He stayed two days there because of his, 41, because of his words, many more became believers. This woman started a revival in Samaria. As the disciples had gone down to get food, who had they brought back? Had they told anyone in the village, look, we're with the Messiah, come and hear him? They didn't say a thing. So this is a mild rebuke to the disciples. Hey, look, this woman, this sinner, this woman, this Samaritan has done more. She's, she's sown some seeds that you're going to reap. See, we don't, we don't see that when we, when we read it through the first time. So some key aspects here. <clears throat> Jesus announced himself as the Messiah for the first recorded time to a sinful Gentile woman who was despised by both the Jews and her own people. The woman was a chosen instrument to begin, begin a revival in Samaria. So you look in the book of Acts, and there's heaps of references to preaching and conversions in Samaria. Uh, 1, 8, 8, 1, 8, 5, 8, 15, 9, 31. I like 15, 3 in Acts in particular. As Paul and Barnabas were going through Phoenicia and Samaria... They told the whole story of how non-Jewish people were turning to God and the story brought great joy to all believers. So the third main point here is the disciples went to get food in the village but they didn't make any effort to bring the Samaritans back with them to meet Jesus. And Jesus shamed them somewhat by saying that someone else, the Samaritan woman, had sown what they would reap. Interesting, eh? So why was it necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria? I think it was so he could teach his disciples and the world that from now on was even Stephen's, Gentiles and Jews were both welcome to the house of God. It would have, and wouldn't it have been more appropriate to announce that he was the Messiah to his own race, God's chosen people first? Instead, he chose a pariah, rejected by the Jews and ostracised by our own people to demonstrate his love for the Gentiles and his desire that they be saved. Romans 2, 10, 11 says, But glory, honour and peace for every person who does what is good for Jews first and also the Gentile. There is no respect of persons with God. Um, 
Think of Luke 15, all of those uh, parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. What's it pointing to? It's God's going to reach every sinner, right, at great sacrifice. God loves everyone. So I think there's some really good lessons we can take away from uh, John 4. First of all, God can use anybody. Uh, the salvation of the Gentiles started with a sinner's testimony. Uh, the woman, she went to the well in the heat of the day because she was rejected by her own people. She wasn't an eloquent speaker. She just recounted her testimony to people who are not particularly interested in hearing it. So God can use anybody, no matter how unworthy we feel or how unreceptive we perceive our audience. We spread the gospel just by being witnesses to what God has done for us. And God can save anybody. This is a, a woman who was a sinner. Um, think about her, compare her with the thief on the cross next to Jesus right on the right hand. He wasn't baptised. He didn't speak in tongues. He didn't even repeat the sinner's prayer. And yet he earned a place in heaven because he believed in Jesus. And that's all they did, right? The woman believed in Jesus. He believed in Jesus. And the Bible tells us, whosoever believes in him. Right? We find it, the other lesson for me is we find it very easy to judge. We can be very selective about who we witness to. A Jewish man once asked Jesus, what must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus told the story of the good Samaritan. Right? And probably the biggest lesson for me, it's very easy to become distracted by temporal, by physical things, temporary things. So even after the momentous, God-ordained, history-making meeting with the Samaritan woman, all the disciples could think about was whether Jesus had eaten. Time and time again through this chapter, he tries to move the discussion off the physical and onto the spiritual. Water, living bread. Uh, water, living water. Bread, food to do the will of the Father. Harvest of plants, harvest of men. Right. So the, the disciples were focused on the, the imminent harvest in Galilee, but they had no conception of a spiritual harvest right in front of them, all these people walking towards them. How true is it for us? You know, we're um, distracted with work and earning money and a nice house and having family and friends and entertainment. Um, I imagine that, like me, some of you would have lost sight of the eternal value things, right? So a couple of illustrations. Uh, a guy turns up at the pearly gates having, having died and, and St Peter shows him through to his, his new house. It's been prepared for him in heaven. And he goes through a street of mansions and they're getting smaller and smaller as he's going towards his house. And at the end, there's a shack. And St Peter says, that's your house. And the guy says, well... All those mansions are empty. How come I only get a shack? And St. Peter says, well, we did the best with what you sent us. So he's taking a dig at miserly giving, you know, um, monetary giving. But there's, a, there's actually some truth in that. It's not so much the monetary giving, but what about the rest of our lives? Our effort, our time, our, our thoughts, our um, discipling of, of others, our reaching out to others. All of that helps to build a house in heaven for us, Right? Um, I've got another illustration here, but I'll, I'll just turn the mic around. Okay, so this represents our life. 
Eternity. Yeah, so we spend so much of our effort focused on this. When look at what we've got ahead of us. You know. So it's all about a matter of perspective, isn't it? As we spend time with God as we begin to, we, and read his word, we learn to we begin to learn what he values. And it might not be the town mayor, it might well be the homeless guy who hassles us for money on the street. Let's become harvest minded. All it needs is our testimony. Tell people that you believe in God and why. You don't need to sell them. Just tell them. Right? And then watch as God works.